morning. We're going to be looking this morning at knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, part one. So we're going to be dealing with this passage over the course of two weeks. And I forgot to change the key words on this slide. And so for those who are keeping track of the key words, it's going to be the word chosen or elect. Okay? So either one of those words, you can make tally marks, keep track of how many times I use those words. So chosen, chosen, chosen. And there you can make three right there. Oh, that's four. That's right. Okay, so let's begin. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 2 through 10. Let's stand for the reading of God's word together. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you, Lord, that these truths never change. But Lord, our understanding, our insight, our appreciation of these truths can rise and fall over time. And I pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see the wondrous things that you intend us to see this morning, that your word would speak clearly. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're dealing today with the issue of God's election. Election is a major doctrine in the Word of God. It means being chosen by God. When we have an election here in the United States, we get to choose our political leaders. We get to choose, in some cases, our public policy. In some cases, we get to choose whether or not to uh, make an amendment to the Constitution of our 
state government. These are all elections. And the word election is used in the scriptures in the New Testament to refer to God choosing. Now we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 4, knowing beloved brethren, your election by God. Now having looked back over my sermon last week, I feel like I misspoke because I was wanting to make the case that the hope that the Thessalonian believers had uh, was rooted in the fact that they knew they were elect. And that is a true statement, but it's not what's being said in this particular verse. What's in view in this verse is that Paul knows that they are elect. And he's going to give us a clear um, list of evidence of that election, of their being chosen in this passage. And so I want to uh, make my mea culpa here and say I was wrong by loading that meaning onto this verse. There are other places to turn to to make that point. And so I should have gone there rather than uh, distorting the truth of this passage. Now the word election, ekloge, uh, simply means divine, divine selection in the, in the scriptures. In this case, being chosen to be one of God's children. Now in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 3 through 4, we read this statement by the Apostle Paul. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Now, I believe that the comma in this verse 4 is in the wrong place. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him, comma, in love having predestined us. God has loved us, and it's his free grace and his free will, his free choice that's involved, but it is a choice driven by love. We see that in various passages, but we're dealing here with the doctrines of both election and predestination, which are... Uh, just in and of themselves, mind-boggling, okay? This is where the philosophical side of your, your mind kicks in is trying to figure out, now, how does that work? You know, how is it that God uh, can predestine something? Uh, how can we have the ability to make real choices if everything is predestined to happen in a particular way? Well, we're not going to get into all of that today, but I will just make this comment. God cannot turn off his omniscience. Okay? And he is not, over, not only everywhere, in that he is omnipresent, he's all over, he's everywhere, he's also every when. Okay? He is from the beginning to the end, and even beyond all of that, God is. He's the great I am present tense, future tense, past tense. And so God cannot stop knowing what will be because he's already there. Okay? 
So kind of put that in your philosophical pipe and smoke it, okay? Uh, God is everywhere and he's every when, and therefore he can't turn that off, and so he knows. Now we can get into all kinds of philosophical gymnastics here trying to uh, make that all work in our very finite minds, and there are answers to questions uh, that people have about these doctrines. But for now, we're just going to leave it at that. They are mind-boggling. And if you don't think they're mind-boggling, you just haven't thought about it enough. Okay? So let's move on. These are the doctrines of grace. Okay? We have our classic tulip, which is total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, an alternative to this which allows us to... See, we didn't choose these, these phrases. The, op, the opposition to these doctrines of grace, the Arminians, chose these phrases, phrases and put them in this particular order. And we find ourselves trying to defend the doctrines uh, from a position that our, our opponents have established rather than the way we would have stated it if we'd given the opportunity. And so, so given the opportunity, I prefer tip-up. Okay, and tip up, you know, think of yourself tipping up toward God and giving him glory for the doctrines of grace. But uh, it involves changing the phrasing. And in fact, if you were really going to get precise, some men like, uh, well, there are a lot of men in the Reformed, uh, Reformed Baptist side of things that would turn this word irresistible grace into the, word, the phrase efficacious grace. It means it's totally effective. It never fails. Okay, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and stick with irresistible grace just so I'm not messing with too many things that people hold dear. Um, but the way it would work would be total depravity. That stays the same. But then unconditional election moves down the list to uh, the lower part because that is when we experience it. We, we experience it later in the process. Although it's done, God has chosen us at the very beginning uh, we experience it uh, down here at the uh, lower end. And then we have limited atonement goes to particular redemption. I don't like the idea that the atonement is limited. God didn't run out of steam, okay? It wasn't like there wasn't enough there. It's just that he has chosen particular people that are going to be saved. And it's not based upon their merits in any way. It's because of his own love and for his own purposes. Uh, in eternity past, he chose us, as we're going to see. So it's a particular redemption for individual people throughout all of history. If you've ever wondered why some of these ornery old, you know, sinners get to live a full life and, you know, get married and have kids and do all that stuff, it's because God's got his chosen down the road here, you know, in the future, and some of the progeny of that scoundrel are going to be among God's chosen people and be saved. So God lets them slip through this life uh, and uh, long enough to have those kids, and then they, you know, they're going to be they're going to pun be punished for their fallenness, just like uh, everyone else who has not been redeemed by God's particular redemption. Now. Irresistible grace moves up the list because it's something that we experience uh, at the beginning of the process. You know, we know we're totally depraved, 
and then God's grace, his efficacious grace appears in our lives and he draws us to himself by the Spirit. The Father uses uh, the power of the Holy Spirit to draw us to faith in Christ. And then today we're dealing with this doctrine of unconditional election. It's, it's an election, it's a choice that is not rooted in any condition on our part. The only thing we bring to this process is our sin that, that gets forgiven. Okay? That's our only contribution to the process of our salvation. Uh, everything else is on God's side as he gives us uh, the faith, he gives us the grace, he gives us everything that is needed all the way through to the end where we see the perseverance of the saints. So it's a deal in which we not only receive the initial salvation, but we receive the grace to continue to the end and ultimately be with God in heaven. So, unconditional election is clearly taught in the Bible. I'm just going to go to one passage here in order to make this point. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26, we read, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Now this word called here has to do with being called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light, being brought into the kingdom of God, being saved, okay? Now he says, but God has chosen, that's elect, he's chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not are nothing. They don't even show up on the scale. God has chosen to bring to nothing the things that are. And why is God doing it this way? The answer is in the last verse, 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Now, I, I understand the difficulty many have with the doctrines of grace, with predestination, and with election. But the fact is, nobody is going to stand before God and be able to say, I am here because I was smarter than the other guy. I was smarter than the average Christian. I had the good sense to listen to the gospel. I had the, the uh, quality of character to be able to recognize my need to repent. I had the humility to be able to say yes to God. And that's why I'm here today. I'm in heaven because I'm a great guy. No, nobody's going to be able to do that. And the more you get close to God, the more you realize how totally undeserving you are. You know, total depravity doesn't mean you're as bad as you could possibly be. <laughs> but it does mean every part of your personality has been affected by the fall. And your sin is, is, is like, it just you're riddled with sin. And it's only the restraining power of the Holy Spirit that keeps people from being as bad as they could be. And that's why Paul says that he who now constrains will be taken out away, and then all, literally all hell breaks loose. And that, I personally believe, is after we have been raptured. 
and then taken uh, to be with the Lord. But that's an eschatological issue. I won't get into that right now. But just want to say, we could get a lot worse than we are apart from the common grace of God uh, that allows even the pagan and the, and the atheist to want to uh, prove to us that he can still be a good person without believing in God. I'm so thankful for that philosophical falsehood. But anyway, uh, at least it keeps them from being as bad as they could possibly be. But how can Paul be so certain that his readers have been chosen by God to be saved? He's writing to them and calling them the church. He's, he's making a huge assumption here that his readers are saved. How can he do that? He's confident that the people he's writing to in the first in First Thessalonians are truly chosen by God to be members of Christ's bride, the church. So how can he be so sure? Well, in this passage that we have read here this morning, we find Paul listing for us ten pieces of evidence that convince him that his readers are truly saved. Now here is the list, the whole list. He sees a work of faith. Number one, he sees a labor of love. Number two, he sees a patience of hope. Number three, which we dealt with in our message last week. Number four, a gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Number five, a new life that mimics and imitates Christ and the apostles. Number six, a joy that soars above circumstances. Number seven, a behavior that is exemplary. Number eight, a witness that is strong, blaring, and ongoing. Number nine, a new allegiance to God as his happy slaves. Now there's a controversial phrase for you. And number 10, a glad willingness to wait in the hope of Christ's return. Now we are going to deal with four, five, six, and seven today. That'll be part one, okay? So, Lord willing, we'll get through these this morning. But it all begins, I want you to notice that it all begins as a work of faith. Now, that faith is a gift from God, as we're told in Ephesians. That faith has been given to us by God. It's part of the package of the doctrines of God's grace. But I want to point out to you that when Paul had the opportunity to write what we would call the Gospel according to Paul, which is the book of Romans, he begins in Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, Through him we have received grace, an apostleship for the obedience of faith among the all nations for his name. And then at the end of the book of Romans, in chapter 16, in verse 26, we find, but now is made known to all the nations of, for the obedience of faith, to God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. So I want you to notice how it begins with the obedience of faith, it ends with the obedience of faith, and in between we have the great presentation by the Apostle Paul, 
that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast, that we are chosen by God by unconditional election, as he points out between uh, the, uh, uh, the sons of Isaac. We go on and we see uh, that God has chosen to save some and all the way through. And so we begin, this, this process is begun as a work of faith. God has granted to us the faith to believe, and that faith to believe results in works of faith. Now, when we've been born again by faith alone, through grace alone, our obedience of faith becomes a matter of simply believing that God is so good and so wise that we can completely trust him, that his will for our lives is for our own good and for his greater glory. The Christian life is lived by faith. Everything we do is done by faith. Anything that is not of faith is sin. And so we want to look at all of these evidences of God's grace that we see in, these, in Paul's list as every one of them is driven by this reality that we believe. The gospel is the power of God unto those who believe and unto salvation to those who believe. So let's begin by just reviewing chapter, uh, the list one through three, which is faith, love, and hope. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. So evidences 1 through 3 are your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw last week. Now, just to remind you here, salvation is marked by a faith in God's promises that produces a work motivated by faith, a love that results in labors of love, and a hope that produces the patient endurance needed to continue in both. So these three are related to one another in a very, very uh, precise way. If you lose hope, then you begin to lose steam in those works of faith and those labors of love. And so we labor in hope because we have faith that his promises are true. And so we continue to serve God uh, with our, our faith, our love, and our hope. So we go to number four on the list. It's a gospel that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that the, one of the evidences that these people have been chosen by God to be saved is that his gospel, actually he says our gospel, so it's Paul and it's Silas and it's Timothy. He says our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. Now, just because the word of God came to the Thessalonians not in word only, 
doesn't mean that it didn't come by means of the word. Okay? It just was not word only. Okay? Now this is important. The gospel must come by the word. Not, uh, but it's not only the word. Uh, there's this cute little saying that runs around in the, uh, especially among the emerging church, the, the, uh, the, the more drifting liberal millennial young people church that uh, you should uh, uh, share the gospel as often as you can and when necessary use words. That's a heresy. That is a heresy. <laughs> Never fall into the idea that you can be sharing the gospel without words. Because the gospel is a statement of what Christ has done for us on that cross. That he literally died for us. And that he rose from the dead. And that that is proof that what he did on the cross was, was effective. It succeeded. And so to think that somebody's going to get that by the fact that you smiled at them this morning is stupid. So don't be ashamed of the gospel. Share the truth with people. You say, but what if I offend them? Well, someday you're going to be looking across the chasm and this guy is standing in line waiting to be judged and sent into hell and he sees you standing on this side of the chasm ready to receive your reward and go to heaven and he's going to go, what? Why didn't you tell me? I want you to think about that. I think we're going to see people we could have talked to. So talk to them while you have the opportunity. Tell them the truth. It came in word, but it didn't come in word only. In John chapter 3 and verse 19, we read, Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now Christ himself is proclaiming the truth. And he's saying that the light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. So as sinners, we love our blindness so much that even the word of Christ himself cannot penetrate the blindness of our hearts. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to drive his word home and to bring us to repentance. We need more than just the, the general call of the gospel. If I go out onto the street and I begin to proclaim the gospel to everybody within earshot, that is a general call. But when the Holy Spirit takes what I'm saying and brings it to the attention of an individual, that is a effectual call. That's why it's called effectual grace. Now, he brings that to bear with all his might. And that's what causes a person to actually be saved. You say, well, then I don't need to do anything. I don't need to say anything. All I need to do is just let the Holy Spirit do his thing. Well, no, it doesn't work that way. Now, I want you to use, think of this illustration, not the M&Ms, but the fact that this is a big, a big sign made up of individual light bulbs, okay? Now, all, imagine a sign like this where all the light bulbs were slightly unscrewed, okay? Just, just enough for the light to go off. And in addition to that, these light bulbs are so messed up, every one of them, their filament is broken. 
Okay, so we got a double problem. They are unscrewed and they have a broken filament. So what can we do about that? Well, we can begin screwing in light bulbs. And we just give every one of them a twist. Every one we meet. Evan true evangelism re requires a twist of the light bulb by the evangelist. And then God is the one who puts the new filament in. And when he puts the filament in, the light goes on. If we don't screw in the light bulb, the light won't go on. If he doesn't put the filament in, the light bulb won't go on. We have to both do this. He's given us the Great Commission. So either one without the other and the light doesn't come on. So we spend our lives giving everybody's light bulb a twist. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead. It's proof that it worked. Repent and believe the gospel. Twist, 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 twist. And then God says, that one, <laughs> that one, that one. The light goes on. Because God, in his sovereign grace, is putting a new filament, a new heart, into each one to believe and receive the gospel. So human eloquence, that is the twisting of the light bulb, uh, cannot make the light come on. The gospel must come to us in more than just talk. And that's why 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4 says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul seems to have intentionally dialed down his ability to be eloquent. No, I'm not saying that, that we can't, you know, he talks about doing what he can to be persuading men. So there's some kind of communication strategy going on there. In the way that he writes, you can see that you know, he's writing the truth and he's often eloquent. But he realizes that if, if he puts too much emphasis on that syllable, it's going to mess up things. It's going to confuse people as to how, why did I get saved? Was it because this guy was so eloquent? No, it was because of the power of God to give you a new heart and a new spirit and to give you the Holy Spirit as we see in Ezekiel. So that is why our success does not depend on cleverness of speech. Don't ever think that because you're not as good as the guy on the radio that you can't be used by God to bring people to faith in Christ. A simple statement of the gospel to someone that God has chosen to save will get the job done. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5 we read, For neither at any time did we use flattering words. Paul did not try to uh, butter up people and, and get them you know, in the right mood. You know, he wasn't concerned about you know, saying things in a way that wouldn't uh, uh, un, you know, offend them. But we are told that he took into consideration the culture that he was in. He says, I became all things to all men 
in order that by all means I might win some. So there's a dance going on here between, you know, you don't have to be crude, you don't have to be rude, you don't have to be simplistic, but don't ever think that your cleverness and your ability to be articulate is the, is the uh, decisive thing in this process. It's not. It's God's choice that's decisive. He's the one doing the choosing. You're simply giving every light bulb you meet a little twist. Okay? So, our spirit-empowered word of the gospel sets the stage for God himself to bring new life to those that he has chosen to save. And God's word will prosper. You know, I, I, I like to kind of play a little joke on some folks when they say, so are you, do you believe in prosperity? Do you preach prosperity? I'm, I'm getting into my southern draw here. I shouldn't do that. But, the, you know, that, that doctrine of God's wanting everybody to be rich, everybody to be prosperous, everybody to be, you know, uh, always healed. I, I like what Al Mohler says. He says, when I meet a faith healer who's over 120 years old, then I'll maybe consider it. <laughs> but they don't seem to live any longer than the rest of us. Okay, so God's word will prosper. So in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 10, we get God's definition of prosperity. And this is not just for this word, but this is for everything, I believe. It says, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven... And do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So do you know what prosperity is, truly prosperity? It's fulfilling the purpose for which you've been sent. Now for some of us that might involve more material wealth than others, but we will prosper in the purpose for which we have been sent. And God's word will prosper in the purpose for which it has been sent. And so God's word doesn't fail. Whether it falls like rain and it soaks right into a soil of a person's heart because they're, they're ready to receive it, or whether it falls like snow on a cold, unresponsive heart, God's word will fulfill his purpose for sending it, whether it's to save or to judge. As Jesus tells us in John 12, 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Sometimes God intends for our proclamation of the gospel to set the stage for this person's judgment. And if they respond to the gospel, then they'll be saved. If they will not respond, it provides a basis for God's righteous judgment. But I want you to leave open the possibility that there could be a thaw. This cold, unresponsive heart in the middle of the winter in Michigan somewhere. Spring is coming. People sometimes, their hearts are warmed by circumstances, 
You know, sometimes, like the prodigal son, people come to themselves and they realize they need to repent. And so sometimes that word that we keep piling on, and I especially want to encourage you moms and dads out there, you say, should I say anything? You know, they're not responding. Just keep piling up the snow. There could be a thaw. And all that ice and snow is just going to melt. And it's going to soak right in. And they're going to repent. And they're going to believe. And they're going to be saved. Because of a change in the climate. That's climate change for you. So, we have to be faithful in proclaiming the word of God knowing that God is the one who chooses who will be saved. So why must God's word come in power? Why does it have to come in power? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we get an idea. He says, I'm getting some kind of signal here. He tells us why we need power. He says, in you you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the others. That's why we need power, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. It takes a lot of power to raise someone from the dead. In fact, that raising Jesus from the dead is the, is the standard. That's the epitome of the demonstration of the power of God when he raised the Son of God from the dead. And that's why we need the miracle of the Holy Spirit's power to save us. Now, we have that power of the Holy Spirit as Christ's witnesses. Now think about this. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead through the Holy Spirit has been given to us in order to be effective witnesses for Christ. Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, I want to make clear here because we live in an era of, of movies, car- comic books, and, and uh, all kinds of things that sow wrong ideas into our minds. The Holy Spirit is a person, He's not the force, okay? He's not a force. God is a person. The Holy Spirit moves in power as the third person of the Trinity. So we have the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit himself is not the power. He's a person. He's a person who has power. And that power is the ability to make things happen or stop things from happening. The Holy Spirit restrains and the Holy Spirit moves and motivates. And when the Spirit of God is moving, things begin to happen. So expect the Holy Spirit to move in your life and in your ministry of evangelism. Expect the Holy Spirit to show up. But as I like to say, you've got to give the Holy Spirit something to work with. 
okay? You can't just sit in your basement somewhere and wonder why people are not getting saved. You've got to go out and you've got to take risks. You've got to say something. It doesn't have to be the first thing you say, but make sure that it's something in there that you say that gives opportunity for this person to hear the gospel. I believe that hearing the gospel is the most fundamental of all human rights. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ and he has sent us to go so there's no other authority on earth that trumps his authority and so we have the authority to share the gospel and if someone says well you can't do that here you say this is a human right. This is the most fundamental of all human rights to hear the gospel and have the opportunity to respond to God. So if you say I can't bring Bibles into your country well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to go talk to the higher authority that I am in service to. You say, well, we're going to kill you. Okay, but remember that my death is only going to cause more people to line up with Bibles. <laughs> you might want to think about that. I remember when uh, Warner Braun, what did you say, Warner, the, the guy with the Bible. What? Voice, the, yeah. Um, then we got the Wormbrand. I always get his name backwards. Brown Worm. It's Wormbrand. When Wormbrand was told by the officials brought him in, the communist officials brought him in, sat him down, and they said, "You know, we're going to kill you." He says, "Well, you go ahead, but if you do, everybody's going to be listening to my tapes. <laughs> everybody's going to be reading my books. They're going to go, what was this guy saying that made it so important to have him killed?'" And they said, "Hmm." You're right. And they let him go. <laughs> I wonder if he was disappointed that day. But it's true. When you, when you decide to attack one of God's people in that way, it just makes what they are doing that much more effective. So if anyone does not have this spirit of Christ, he's not yet his. This is an important statement. Romans 8, verses 9 through 11 but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You've been changed. You've been transformed. You are now uh, a believer. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, notice how the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, all the same spirit. He is not his. That means he is not Christ. And if Christ is in you, how is Christ in you? By the spirit. Okay. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically it means your physical body is still succumbs to temptations and desires, and you never, as Paul has just said in Romans chapter 7, the things you want to do, you never can entirely do the way you'd like. And the things you don't want to do, you tend to end up doing anyway. And Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death? And then he gives us the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's the Lordship of Christ that rescues you from being a slave to your physical body's yearnings and appetites for sin. It's walking in the Spirit, as he says. If you walk in the Spirit, 
you're not going to succumb, you're not going to give in to the works of the flesh. Now, the problem is we don't always walk in the Spirit, and we do succumb to it. And that's why he says in the very first verse of Romans chapter, one, uh, chapter 8, Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, I still screw up. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So what we have here is Paul saying... This, the body's dead. You, you, can't, you can't do anything about that. It's still dead in, in sin, because of sin. But the spirit is life in you because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is pointing to not only sanctification in this life, but resurrection on that day when Christ returns. There's going to be a resurrection of your body, and it'll be a glorified body that has no more of these sinful desires and appetites that you have to war against. You're going to have, I like to use the illustration, your nature will be so entirely changed, you have no more appetite for sin. Like, like, you know, I don't have any appetite to, to, to tart, tart chew. I don't know if this is really wood, but let's say it was wood. I don't have any appetite for chewing on wood because I'm not a termite, okay? And when we get to heaven, it'll be like that. I have no desire to sin. That doesn't even look good to me. I don't want to do those things. No, in this life, my flesh wants to do those things. And I have to say no to sin. We all have to say no to something. And so I hope that you'll keep on saying no to whatever it is that you are tempted to do. So the Holy Spirit raises our souls from the dead first, and that's our salvation. And then later when Christ returns, he will raise our mortal bodies from the dead. And that is going to be glorious. Now, a new life that mimics Christ's life. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Imitators of us. Paul is saying, I know you were chosen by God because of how you immediately began imitating us to become like us and, and like the Lord. Now, the word mimetai, from which we get the word mimic, or mimics, or mimeograph, for some of you old enough to remember those machines, it, been, it literally means little copies. You became little copies of us. You began to mimeograph us and become like us, copies of us. Instead of having the identifying characteristics of their previous father, which was the devil, the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. They now have the identifying characteristics of their new father, their new Lord, their new Savior, which indicated that they were now his children instead of the children of the devil. John gets into a lot of that in his epistle, the first epistle of John. So the word Christian itself means little Christ. So if you call yourself a Christian, you're saying, I'm a little Christ. I'm a, a mimic of Christ. I'm a, I'm a mimeograph of Christ. 
And I'm doing my best to be a good copy, okay? A, a perfect copy as, as much as I can. And so that is our, our fifth evidence of God's grace. Now the sixth one in our list here is a joy that soars above circumstances. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, with joy of the Holy Spirit. The sixth mark that identifies God's chosen ones is a spiritual joy that continues even while going through very hard times. Now, sometimes people confuse happiness with joy. But happiness is normally dependent on what is happening. That's why we call it happiness. It has to do with happenstance. It has to do with the circumstances of your life. Things are going well, I'm happy. Things are not going well, I'm not happy. But you know, you can be very, very unhappy and still have the joy of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just an emotional thing. It's a deep confidence that God is still on his throne, that he's still in control, and that your circumstances, whatever they may be, are going to pass. But your relationship with God is not going to be changed by these events. Now, this is where the Christians were able to go even into the Colosseum and die with the violence of gladiators and lions and still experience the joy of the Lord. And so many people were converted to Christ observing the joy and the peace that the Christians had even while they were being persecuted violently. So the Thessalonians not only had a new, totally changed life, a mimeograph of Christ, they had a joy that was independent of this world's circumstances. That is a mark of a true believer. And they went through some great sufferings. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. Now notice what's next. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. So these Thessalonians were going through the same kind of persecution that took Jesus to the cross. The same kind of persecution that Paul was experiencing in every town he went to. These Thessalonians, these baby Christians, were being persecuted and going through some very, very hard times. Now, the word tribulation used here is... <laughs> I hate this. Thelippus. Thelippus. And it means intense pressure. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 4, it reads, For, in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation, just as it happened, and, and you know. You're going through it. First, or Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
Now, I don't mean to uh, be too nosy here. Why do we not experience persecution? It says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Is it possible that we're like a lightning rod that's hiding in the basement? You know, you put a lightning rod up on top of the house, it'll get hit by lightning. You take it down off the house, it doesn't get hit by lightning. Is it possible that some of us at least are living in such a way that we avoid the lightning of the persecution that comes from standing out, standing up, being unashamed of the gospel, speaking as the apostles were told, speaking all the words of this life in the very place that they had just been arrested. You know, the kind of boldness that we see in these Thessalonians is what was causing them to be persecuted. They could have laid low. They could have kept their heads down. They could have shut up. You know, everything about the Holy Spirit is encouraging us to step forward and speak out. And everything in this world is encouraging us to step back and shut up. So which influence is going to be dominant in your life? Will you step forward and speak out to such a degree that you get hit by the lightning? There's a saying that the tall trees get hit by lightning. The ones that are sticking out from the crowd get hit by lightning. Ask yourself, are you keeping your head down or are you standing up where people can see who the believers are? And when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, now, you're going to feel a little pressure. What he's meaning is, this is going to hurt. This is, this is going to hurt. And we have to go into our days with the attitude, I'm going to feel a little pressure if I do what I'm supposed to do today. Uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be painful, maybe. You know, there are different ways in which people can persecute you. It may be a job you don't get promoted in. It, it may be uh, opportunity, doors that don't open for you. Parties you don't get invited to. You know, that's, boy, that's devastating when you're a teenager, right? Not so much when you get a little older. But we need to stop and think about this. Perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions is the way that Paul describes it. We speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Persecutions come from other people. Okay, uh, If you stub your toe in the morning on the foot of the bed, that's not persecution. That is affliction. <laughs> okay. Affliction comes from difficult circumstances. It's painful, but it's not persecution. But when people are intentionally inflicting pain, that is persecution. And both are to be endured by faith and hope. Okay? So, this wasn't a mere human joy that these Thessalonians were experiencing. It was the joy of the Holy Spirit. It was a supernatural joy. It was a spiritual joy. It was a consequence of being alive in Christ and being aware of what really matters and what's really going on in this world 
And so their joy was fixed upon heavenly things, things above, not upon things on the earth. And that is a consequence of being born again and being able to see the kingdom of God, to be able to enter the kingdom of God, participate in the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul tells the Ephesians, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Down here, they're beating you up. Every time you come to town, they beat you up. Up there, the angels are rejoicing as they observe your faithfulness and your endurance in the midst of hard times. So this is another evidence of grace and of true salvation. Nominal believers fall away. True believers do not fall away, or at least they don't permanently. They may walk away for a while and come back, but a true born-again believer will not fall away. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 3 says, Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell on the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. That's the person who just hears the gospel, doesn't even think about it, and then Satan comes and kind of erases that from his memory. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the wayside. It says, some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. So the, the hot sun warmed the moist soil above the stones, right? Ideal environment for germination, right? All these little sprouts coming up. But when the sun was up, they were scorched and became, because they had no root, they withered away. So the apostles come and say, Jesus, what, what was all that about? Can you explain all of that to us? And he did in Matthew 13, 20. It says, but he who received the seed on stony places is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. That's the nominal believer right there. That's the person who's a Christian in name only. The Christian who wants to be a part of the church because of the temporal benefits of being in the church, meeting new clients, selling used cars, whatever, building your downline. I'm not saying all those things mean you're not a Christian, but I'm saying if that's all there is to your church attendance, then you're in the wrong church. There's not much here, right? Not, not many of us. Go to the big church if you want to sell cars, right? But he's saying that these people have no root in themselves. They're, they're so shallow. There's been no repentance. There's not been any actual faith exercised. They, they could have joined the Kiwanis. Right? This is not a saving faith. This is simply a, a career move. So you can tell a person is a real believer when you see the joy of the Holy Spirit in their lives, even as they go through the pressures of life. When persecution uh, comes and, and, and uh, tribulation comes, they, they're not looking for the door. They're going to go through it. They're going to endure it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We see this in the lives of the apostles in Acts 5.40. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, <laughs> it's interesting how they just throw that in. 
So they, you know, they had this conference. They said, what do you think? What should we do with these guys? He says, well, if you try to fight them too much, you know, they're going to just uh, you know, grow, so you probably shouldn't, shouldn't overreact. And so when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, not even mentioning the pain of being beaten. It's just the shame of, of suffering uh, for his namesake. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy of that. Who would want to avoid being identified with Jesus when we know for all eternity we're going to be so glad we did? I mean, think about it. Randy Alcorn says, you know, we are living in the dot of time. A little single little dot. Eternity is a line that goes off the page and goes on forever. What you do in the dot of your lifetime is going to affect the eternity of the line that you're going to be living when Christ returns. And, and when you are faithful to Christ and unashamed of Christ, it's going to affect in some way the quality of your eternity. Now, I have my theories about how that works, but I do believe you will be glad that you were faithful. You will be glad that you didn't quench the Holy Spirit. You'll be glad that you took risks. You will be glad that you invested in eternal treasure rather than just this world's treasures. You'll be so glad you did. I don't know how it works exactly, but I do know that it's some, in some way, in eternity, you're going to be glad that you gave it all in the dot, in the moment, so that now you enjoy the benefits for all eternity. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ because this is a fundamental human right and no authority in heaven or on earth can tell you you can't do this. They can tell you, but you don't have to obey it. This is the joy of the Holy Spirit. So, how can you know if you are saved? A work of faith should be observable. A labor of love should be observable. A patience of hope should be observable in your life. A gospel that has come to you empowered by the Holy Spirit, not just in words, but in the power of the Spirit. A new life that has resulted, that mimics the life of Christ and the life of his apostles. And a joy that soars above your circumstances because it's not rooted in this world but it's rooted in your relationship with God in heaven. Now next week we will deal with a behavior that is exemplary, a witness that is strong, blaring, and ongoing, a new allegiance that, to God that is, as his happy slaves, and then finally a glad willingness to wait in hope of Christ's return. But as we saw, it all begins and ends with faith. Do you believe? Do you trust God enough to actually obey him? Does your faith lead to an obedience of faith that changes everything? When we have been born again by faith alone,
through grace alone and does not remain alone. We find ourselves obeying in faith everything that we believe to be pleasing to God. And the reason we choose to please God rather than ourselves or others is because we believe in our hearts that God is so good and he is so wise that we would be crazy to disregard his will for our lives because it's in our best interest to obey him. It's for his greater glory to obey him. And we're living in this dot and it's going to affect the way we spend all eternity in the line that runs right off the page. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are so good and so kind. Lord, we have nothing to bring to this process but our sin, and we thank you, Lord, that you've forgiven us for our sins, past, present, and future, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, and now we live for you. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.